podcast where we get to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Keach, and we are coming to you from the Inventa Capital Studio. Now, today on the podcast, I had Stephen Stewart, the chairman of the Ore Group, a group of companies based out of Toronto, Ontario. They're looking for gold, they're looking for copper, uh, they're looking for uranium, now they're looking for nickel all over North America. So we get into detail on all those portfolio companies. We talk about Stephen's background. We talk about YMP, Young Mining Professionals, uh, an organization that Stephen is very involved in. We talk about the next generation of people coming into the mining industry and what success looks like for them and what they need to do to become entrepreneurs, to become professionals. This is a great podcast to listen to for anyone operating in the space, anyone looking at buying into early stage exploration companies, we cover a lot of material. So without further ado, let me please introduce Stephen Stewart from The Ore Group. All right, Stephen, welcome to the Resource Insider Podcast today. Jamie, thrilled to be here. It's been uh, been waiting for my invitation for a long time. So well, very, very happy to be I here. I feel like we've been talking about it for like a couple of years now. Um, and I normally prefer to do these things in person. And I had thought we would get the day to do this in person when you were in Vancouver or when I was in Toronto, um, but a year into the pandemic, it doesn't look like that's going to be happening anytime soon. So we're going to have to settle for a Zoom call right now, and then uh, maybe we'll have a round two down the road somewhere. Here we go. Let's do it. All right. Stephen Stewart, chairman of the Ore Group. For people who don't know what that is and who you are, can you give us the 30,000-foot overview of who you are and what the Org Group is and what you guys are doing today. Sure, the Org Group is uh, it's really a collection of people who invest uh, in the resource in the resource world. Effectively, I mean, the, the street would label us a merchant bank, but I don't really like labels. As I said, it's just a representation of the group of people who are affiliated with us, and it culminates in. Um, a basket or a portfolio of junior companies, most of which are public, some of which are pre-public on route to, to, to listing, et cetera. And we're in this to make a discovery. That's really, to me, fundamentally what the Or Group is all about, trying to make money for our shareholders by making a discovery. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is kind of a common term within the mining space, a group, you know what I mean? We have sort of the discovery group and, and, and various other um, sort of affiliates. Can you, you know, I think it might be worth talking about very quickly for people, uh, investors at home who maybe have heard this term thrown around but don't really understand how it works. Uh, you sort of mentioned a merchant bank. Can you sort of talk about why we see these you know, groups form in the mining space and, and what sort of advantages they might offer to to companies that are often, you know, very small, sometimes underfunded, sometimes understaffed, how these sort of consolidated enterprises or groups can kind of lend a benefit there. Sure. Well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons to have a group and let's define a group by having multiple, call it publicly traded juniors. I can't necessarily speak to those other guys, but I, I imagine they're all created in the same vein. I can speak to my my rationale is that I, I like to categorize 
companies within their commodities and their jurisdictions. So I don't like to have an, a nickel project mixed, you know, in, in Manitoba mixed with a gold project in Quebec. Mm -hmm. So those two commodities are, are have distinct audience groups, i.e. investors, oftentimes distinct technical expertise that is required to discover a nickel deposit vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, you know, something, a, a gold deposit, sure zone holster deposit in the Abitibi. So that's broad strokes why you'd want to have two, two different companies. And of course, the ore group has uh, half a dozen companies. And you'll notice for the most part, there's exceptions to the rule. And I guess ore finders in Mustanga would be an exception to the rule there. But there's there's a very good explanation why those two are quite similar in their focus. But um, you'll see we've selected a basket of commodities and it's, it's gold, it's copper, it's uranium. Uh, we're getting into the nickel industry. And so it's really just us building a company around either a technical individual who's got a great, great track record, like James Sykes, for example, in uranium, mm -hmm. uh, and then getting him to go out there and acquire a basket of assets, or it happens the other way around. We identify uh, an asset that is in a particular space like the Opamisca and QC Copper, fantastic copper deposit, and then we look to install the right person uh, for that particular project. Okay, so why don't we talk a little bit um, quickly about the different companies in your portfolio now and what they're focused on and what each of them are doing? Sure. So we've got Mistango River Resources, straight on the venture, excuse me, straight on the CSE under the symbol MIS, and I'll lump Ore Finders into the same category as it. Ore Finders is sort of the, I don't want to say the parent company, but was the original company and it has exposure to perhaps not all of the companies in our group, but, but most of them. And the reason those two companies, those two companies are both focused on gold. They're both focused on the Kirkland Lake camp by and large. Uh, they, why we have two almost identical strategic focused companies is because Ore Finders did a hostile proxy battle on Mustango and took it over. Uh, I do think that those two companies probably all else equal belong under one roof, but we're not going to move forward with, with that, that sort of call it amalgamation until there's a real good reason for it. And there's, you know, I won't get into the details, but it's a lot of work to amalgamate just for the sake of it. But mm -hmm. um, the other company I mentioned is QC Copper. It's uh, focused in Quebec uh, in the Shibugamu district, Shibugamu Chape. It's an old Falcon Bridge mine that we acquired. It's got a huge amount of data. Uh, we believe we've done an internal resource. It's got a very robust um, pit. Uh, pit constrained model with both copper and gold. It's copper rich, and there's all sorts of exploration upside in in that company. And uh, it's QC Copper happens to own uh, about 35% of another company we control called Baseload Energy. Baseload is a TSX venture uh, uranium exploration company. That was what I mentioned before. We built that company around James Sykes. James is a, a really brilliant young geologist who's really passionate about uranium. And um, uh, I've been trying to get exposure to the uranium industry for a long time. I'm a big believer in the economics and uh, of that metal and its actual fundamental utility. There's no better place to be in, in than northern Saskatchewan. So, but I was just waiting for the right individual because uranium is very niche in terms of how you look for it. It's very different from our double double group. And then we've got uh, American Eagle Gold, which is a uh, soon to be, but we're going to be listed in probably first week of April. We just 
completed the private placement. All that funds are held in escrow until listing will be on the venture. It's led by a friend of mine, Tony Moreau, who I've known for a long time. And it's focused in Nevada, mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the Carlin trend. Uh, it's got a couple assets there. And I, and I think our shareholders can expect us to grow that portfolio as we become listed. And last but not least on the list is a company called D-Block, which is, uh, again, pre-public. It's not as advanced stage as AEG or American Eagle in terms of listing, uh, but we've got a CPC that we're going to be merging with, and we got a couple uh, nickel assets, one in the Thompson camp of Manitoba, which is a world-class nickel district, and then we've got a, a really exciting uh, grassroots exploration project that to me is why I've started D-Block is because I was approached by a couple of Inco geologists, ex-Inco geologists who've spent the past 10 years trying to find the next nickel sulfide camp. They, they've identified something really interesting and they came to me to finance it and I acquired it. It's, it's very binary. It's either they're right and if they're right, it's going to be a huge hit or we're wrong. And, you know, more oftentimes we're wrong in the exploration business, but we vetted this thesis and we think it's worth the risk reward. So in the coming weeks, uh, I think people are at least will be talking more publicly about D-Block, um, raising the, the seed round, going public round, et cetera. But I think it's going to come together quite quickly. And that sort of rounds out the public facing companies that we have. All right. So we've got copper, gold uranium and soon to be nickel as well you got it okay and is that is that five companies or six trying to six six that'll be half a dozen companies um and i think that really rounds out the exposure that we want uh we we typically i mean those commodities to me i mean gold i'm a a gold bug i believe in gold uh the, the narrative behind gold because of my personal beliefs on the macroeconomic situation fiat currency you know you've heard it before we don't have to get into it but i but i i see serious uh macroeconomic mm-hmm. uh, issues on the horizon um if that doesn't happen that's fine but i think gold is is good good to have a exposure to in that, in that sort of situation whereas i i'm a big believer in base metals because i also think they're going to be, be, be building infrastructure uh in order to catch up with with the east in particular china who's really uh nipping at the the heels of call it world um domination. And so I think the West has no choice but to build roads, bridge, airports, tunnels, et cetera. And then if you want to add the electrification aspect on top of that to juice it up, I think we're on the precipice of a, uh, you know, a, what do you call it? But a, you know, a, a fundamental event that, that, that is really going to see money come from the oil and gas sector, trillions and trillions of dollars be diverted away from, call it carbon producing, fossil fuel burning, mm-hmm. uh, electri- uh, electrical generating opportunities towards, uh, call it clean, green metals. And I think in order to maintain our way of life, we're going to need uranium to power. I think we're going to need copper to transport said power, and we're going to need nickel to store it. Uh, at least nickel in the in the mobile capacity to store it. Grid storage is a whole nother um, argument that I don't think we're really, I don't think we've solved that recipe yet. But those are the real fundamental commodities that I see having huge potential in the face of a massive infrastructure build. That's interesting you mentioned that. So last week I, had a, I did a podcast with a gentleman named Owen Hegarty from EMR Capital, a big yeah. private equity firm out of Australia. And we were talking about sort of this shift, um, 
shift is maybe not the best word, but it's it's kind of this amalgamation now of the mining space and the energy space, right? And you're kind of blurring the lines between what constitutes energy now, uh, and metals are going to be taking up a lot of that role that was you know previously held uh, by oil and gas and. Something we discussed, and that you know, it sounds like you're touching on the same idea. Is that do you think mining companies, companies that are are mining the coppers, the nickels, uh, maybe the lithiums and cobalts, these sort of things of the world, are going to start getting, uh, I guess, the ratings, uh, the re-ratings, and the and the cash flow into them that were traditionally associated with the energy sector, oil and gas. Well, there's absolutely no question about it. The only question is timing. I, I don't think it's going to happen overnight, and we're not there yet. I do not think oil and gas is going away anytime soon. I think the transition is in progress, clearly, but it's going to take time. Um, and uh, you know, oil and gas, you mentioned, you know, they're, they're, they're cousin industries, right? Even mm-hmm. though they're very much bifurcated, it's very rare to see uh, guys like me involved in the oil and gas and, and vice versa. They stay apart, but at the end of the day, they're extractive industries. But um, I don't think clearly we see that there is a policy being mandated for the the public at large to get away from ca- uh, carbon, whether you know through yeah. carbon taxes and all that sort of narrative, and that's that's fine. Uh, I don't think the the economics are quite there yet. To call it the free market economics. It's got some some ways to go, and we can use call it the battery, the, the EV cars, as a good proxy for you know the economics. Um, clearly, they're only. I, I don't. I'm not totally up to speed on the on the true numbers, but it's you know somewhere between probably one and two percent of cars sold are EVs. Now, clearly, it's a better product. Uh, you know, it's you go faster, uh, met less moving parts, less maintenance. It's cleaner. There's you know, I guess if you eliminate the fact that it's probably powered from a a coal generation facility or a nuclear industry, it's it's supposedly you know zero output. But the fact is, they're just not selling. I mean, you know, if it's 98% still dominated by internal combustion, you know, the reason is simply economics. But that is changing quite quickly. I think the threshold has to be before they get down below the $100 per kilowatt storage in that car. And we're seeing huge changes. So I think it's we're almost there. We're not quite there. But when we do get there, it's going to it's going to come quickly. Yeah, you know, I think people do overestimate the speed at which things move. Uh, we, I read an interesting study a few months ago that the transition from firewood to primarily coal, I guess it would have been in the 1800s, took about 100 years before coal actually outperformed, uh, again, not outperformed, but was the primary source of, mm-hmm. of, of fuel. So I don't think it'll take 100 years on this one. I think the world moves a little bit faster today, but it's not going to be two years or five years, I would suspect. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the magic rule I've heard before, I got, this is just anecdotal, but once once it hits 10%, then it's then it's just, it steamrolls and there's mm-hmm. a huge tsunami of demand. So I think we're probably in this, in the low single digits, getting our way to 10%, but one once the adoption rate of EVs and, you know, similar type technologies come into play, that's when we're going to see that the rapid decline of oil and gas in terms of transportation. Now, that doesn't mean oil and gas is going away. It just means that it has different uses. I mean, oil and gas is, is let's just go, but gas or oil is used in our clothing and plastics. And, you know, it's such a deeper industry than most people realize. Obviously, um, putting it in your car and in, in our planes and boats and whatnot is probably the largest component. But look, it's not going in any, it's not going away, but it's definitely there is a shift um 
occurring and it's and it's real and it's going to be i think that opportunity when it does come when when we do get to that 10 per, 10% threshold is going to be the biggest industrial opportunity since the industrial revolution i really just think there's a, the whole world is going to be rebuilt hmm. in a sense okay good let's get back to mining now so all right when we first met, I, I want to say this was probably somewhere around 2017-ish, and and you were, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this, you were the CEO of Orefinders at the time. Am I right on that? I was CEO uh, in 2017, and I still am, yes. Okay. And, okay, sorry, I thought you'd stepped up to just chairman. I, I, didn't, under, I didn't understand Oh, no that. worries. So you're CEO as well. Okay. I remember talking to you and, and reading or watching some of the material or interviews you'd been part of. And a big focus for you was on the strategy of acquiring ounces in the ground versus exploring for ounces in the ground. And can you talk a little bit on that strategy, why you came up to, with that, what it means to acquire versus explore and, and sort of the what you viewed as the value drive of that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's that I didn't come up with it. I, I, I borrowed the idea. Um, you know, it's really... My whole thesis is based on cyclicality. The whole world is cyclical down to, you know, down to the, <clears throat> the molecule, there's cycles. And, and, and that manifests itself certainly in, in, in markets and, and mining is no exception. And so w- with, with that sort of fundamental view that this is a cyclical market, um, you try and be counter cyclical in your strategy, not just for the sake of it, but you have to identify trends. And I, and I, Back in, I guess, starting in 2015, we really stopped from the drill, drill, drill strategy, which Orefinders was doing, and we evaluated the economics. I mean, so it's it's very easy to look at the numbers, and if, if it's costing you X dollars to discover, uh, drill out a fresh ounce, meanwhile, you can, you can buy said ounce or a sort of a, a duplicate of it. Meanwhile, you know, all ounces are sort of like snowflakes, but if you could buy that same 43101 ounce uh, in the same jurisdiction for 10% of the cost to me you know that's that's a no brainer and so that was the strategy we deployed we in 2015 we just said to the market look we're not drilling period end of story it was not necessarily popular with shareholders you know if if, if shareholder just heard me say that they they you know probably take a pass on it however if they took the time and asked me why, and I explained exactly what I'm explaining to you today is that the replacement costs um, um, far outweigh. So me buying that that ounce that was drilled five years ago, 10 years ago is, is much better economics. You sit back, you acquire, not only can you acquire in a distressed, call it broader macro scenario, you look for those unique opportunities within that. So, you know, obviously gold price is down and then you look for those companies that are struggling. And so you you buy a distressed situation in a down market. Uh, you what's fundamental to that thesis is you have to have the cash to hold on to it, right? Mm-hmm. You need to acquire um, title and have tenure on it for an undetermined amount of time. So you require cash, you require patience, and then when the market turns, that's when you look to expand organically and you you turn inward. And I think it was in December. Go back to Orefinder's news release, December thirtieth, twenty. 19 that's when we said look we are going to be shifting strategies so we've been you know pounding the drum don't drill don't drill and we we quite correctly um 
predicted, though we got lucky. I mean, you, we didn't know, but we just, we just, in our gut was saying things are changing. Yeah. And uh, that's what we said, we're going to go back to the drill bit. But before we did that, we had to raise capital to do that. And so 2020 was a year where across our portfolio, I think we raised probably north of 35, 36 million dollars within that portfolio, all with the aim of putting that money back into the ground. Not just so or now's, or an ore finders across the whole ore group. Is across right? the whole portfolio, not just okay. ore finders. So ore finders, Mustango, QC Copper, Baseload, American Eagle, all those companies yeah. were in capital raising mode so that we could go and put the money back into the ground so we can expand. So we, we bought one ounce for cheap price, but we want to take that one ounce, turn it into two ounce, or, you know, I should be talking millions because that's the real objective, but I'm just trying to make the point that mm-hmm. uh, with the, you know, and back then I have to sort of build on top of 2015 to through 2019, the cost of capital, which is a fancy word for saying my share price was so low that I didn't want to dilute. Um, to put it into the ground, if we were going to you know, give away 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% of our company for a multi-million dollar drill campaign, and then we we meet investors' expectations, we get great intersections, but because the investor base just isn't there, we get sold off, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, buy and rumor, sell on news sort of thing. So what what sense does that make? It, it, to us, it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I want to break this down uh, a little bit further for people at home who might not fully be sort of understand all the terminology that we're, we're saying. So, you know, when you're talking about the difference between the cost of drilling versus the cost of acquisition, you know, people at home should know that, it, you know, it costs a lot of money to define an ounce of gold in the ground. You've got to hire the team. You've got to put a camp out there. You've got to get out there. You've got to drill the holes. You've got to recover the core. You've got to assay the core. You've got to uh, then hire someone to write up an NI43-101 compliant resource. And you know, a company, and I mean, especially an established exploration company like Orefinders, I assume at this point has a pretty good idea of what it's going to cost for every ounce that you're able to add to your resources, right? Certainly, we can look in the back in the in the rearview mirror and make certain assessments of that. But on top of what you're discussing, is there actual risk of is it is, is it? Well, there? yeah, exactly. Even if it's yeah, and then the answer might be there's none. So to go out, you found that you could consistently find in that region. I think we're talking about the Kirkland Lake region, right? In, in Ontario, one of the most By established yeah, gold jurisdictions on the planet. And you were able to go out and from other, you know, probably frankly distressed companies at that point that were out of cash buy the ounces off their book, acquire projects for a price that you deemed cheaper than what you could actually accomplish. Correct. Pennies on the dollar. So Pennies on the dollar. How many that's, ounces that's, that's did you acquire line. during this phase of your growth? What did you guys get up well, to? Well, collectively, you know, probably close to 2 million across the portfolio. I mean, I can give you one example, um, how we how we made an acquisition, which was really not something that I would recommend, but it's something that that, that, that we went through and learned a lot from was, was our Mustango. Uh, situation. Mustango has about 600,000 ounces on the Cadillac fault, as well as a land position right beside Macassa. When uh, when we took interest in that company, I forget the exact date, but you know it had a market cap of a million dollars. Okay, million dollars. It had no cash. It had you know terrible balance sheet. It was a, it was an awful mess, corporately speaking. But it had this asset, it had this land package. All right. So it's we less acquired- than. A- a dollar sixty an ounce, something like that, or less than that. Yeah, dollar forty. You know, ounce. just yeah. just you know, really pennies on the dollar in terms of what this would trade for now and what it does trade for now. Um, and we we acquired our position for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of ore finder shares, 
which we've parlayed into, you know, which at the time was 31%, it's been diluted down, but still worth, I mean, that that from an investment standpoint, from Orfinder's position uh, was, we really hit it out of the park. And then alongside that, you know, I, I became a big shareholder in Mistango and did very well on that that acquisition. But really that was about identifying, it was a, it was a bad time. Macro speaking, nobody was interested in, in uh, investing in that company. As I said, we, we uh, and that was a distressed situation. And when I when we resolved that distressed situation, we went through a year's worth of court battles, et cetera. And then we tried to finance it. And I think we tried to finance it at two or three cents. Nobody wanted to write that check, you know. So I mean, right. you know, even with those economics, even with a new team in there, um, it just speaks volumes that nobody wanted to write checks at the two and three cent range. And I mean, what is it they, at we now? We got it done. What's that? What are you guys trading at now? I think we're trading at, you know, 12, 13 cents, but, you know, we, we pulled back substantially. I mean, we hit a high of 35 and, and uh, I think the markets is softened for the juniors and people are waiting on our drill results. We've got a big mm. drill campaign that's, that's going out, but you know, there was a time when that was a, a 10 bagger easily. Um, now it's only a, a four or five bagger, but I expect, um, you know, our drill results and we've got a lot of news forthcoming that, uh, uh, that stock has a lot of promise in it. it's got a lot of cash too. It's got about six and a half million bucks of cash. So come 2019, you guys decide, all right, time to put the acquisition strategy on hold, time to start drilling, time to start exploring the portfolio that we've built. What were the things you were seeing that prompted that shift? I don't know if there was any one particular thing. It's really just a collection of, you know, experiences. Um, I'd have to go back and put myself in the in the in my shoes of 2019. I suppose really the, the it's the interest in gold price. I think gold had had then just come above $1,400. I mean, people can go and double check my facts, but you know, there there became a heartbeat in the gold industry. Now, of course, we'd probably be crying in our in our cereal if gold was down, back at 1,400. But at the time. It was it was big news and it was just sort of I think it when it got above the 1350 it was really when uh, it broke along, I think, six years support. And so that was just one indicator. But really, it was just anecdotal. It was about um, people like me, my colleagues trading assets, uh, getting calls, unsolicited calls from investors uh, to me. So it was just a collection of anecdotal facts like that paired with an increase in the gold price, which led us to believe, okay, we think we're going to be able to get our share price up. Uh, and I think the market's going to be ready for some drill campaigns again, because I have the very firm belief that this whole industry over the past, and this is not just specific to gold, but the whole industry has been depleting their reserves without replenishing it. And, uh, and we're not finding it like we used to. So these reserves are dwindling. They're harder to find. When we do find them, they're much lesser grade and they're deeper or they got metallurgical issues or and they're in crazy jurisdictions. So I do think that established resources are going to be even more valuable, you know, very, very valuable in, in the years ahead. I, I, I think we're at the, the beginning of a real strong uh, bull market. And, and that's fundamentally based on uh, the demand for commodities that we're going to need to maintain our way of life, whether that's the base metals or to uh, hedge against this monetary craziness, this fiat craziness, which seems to be going around and potentially inflation down the road. You know, you mentioned uh, crazy jurisdictions. And, you know, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you about. You guys are in 
Quebec, you're in Ontario, you're in the Athabasca, you're in Nevada now. These are tier one mining jurisdictions, established mining jurisdictions, long histories of mining, of mining in all these places. Was this a very conscious choice on your behalf to, to stick in sort of what I would call the tier one safe jurisdictions against going to maybe these more frontier markets where perhaps there's less geological at risk, but much more political risk and instability risk and all these sort of things? Yeah, well, you hit you hit the nail on the head. It's all about risk and one's ability to manage risk and 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 how you position yourself and inform your shareholder to be prepared for what type of risk. Um, I would love to be in some of these, you know, call it lesser um, tiered or jurisdictionally risky uh, jurisdictions. Just call it like Africa's a big place, but Africa's just generally viewed as a as a, as a riskier place. There are elephants yet to be deposited to your point you know there's geologically there may be i don't know if it's less risk but there's certainly more deposits to be found than in the abitibi which has been poured over uh, but from my perspective it comes down to people and and experience i i'm well positioned to understand the geologic risks but also jurisdictional risks in canada and the united states because that's where my experience lies that's where my team experience lies uh, if i had a partner who you know grew up in the DRC or, or, or Botswana or, uh, or Indonesia, for that matter, I would feel more comfortable going into that jurisdiction, but not without their expertise uh, of the laws, the language, uh, the culture, the, the people. So the reason is, it's not because I'm necessarily um, against those jurisdictions or I think that you cannot do business there. You absolutely can. Clearly, it's been proven time and time again. It's just not where my area of expertise is. So why would I leave my area of expertise when I can do business in my backyard? And I and I know very well that there are world-class discoveries yet to be found uh, in a place that I'm very comfortable doing business with. Yeah. Have you ever, you know, taken a hard look or a serious consideration of an asset in a place in Africa, in Latin America, um, in one of these potentially more challenging jurisdictions? Absolutely. I've, I've been invested in and um, hasn't worked out. And so I haven't had great experiences as, as a primary, call it, call it an operator. And I haven't had great experiences as, as an investor. Um, but as an investor, probably less, less seasoned because I typically invest where I know. And that's, you know, I invest in people who are uh, companies that are focused in safer jurisdictions. So I guess I do have a natural bent towards mm-hmm. investing in these safer places because I think this business is risky enough. Um, and from a geological perspective, uh, it's, I think a lot of these call it, um, riskier jurisdictions, they're a phone call away from losing their deposit. And that, that really concerns me that said, you know, let's define what a tier one, you know, jurisdiction is. Uh, there's, there's no question that in Canada, and the United States, we face a whole lot of jurisdictional risks just because we are quote unquote, you know, civilized. That doesn't mean that things don't change very, very quickly uh, with the political regime de jour. Um, certainly in Canada, um, just ask the oil and gas industry out in Alberta how they feel about, you know, jurisdiction uh, or the pipeline companies. And I think, you know, it's yet to be seen about how uh, the Biden administration is going to really uh, operate in the U.S., specifically the mining. But I think people are quite concerned down there. So that begs mm. the question, you know, what what is jurisdictional risk? And and uh, is there really 
a safe place? And the answer is no, it's just, but it comes back to, again, your original point is risk and understanding those risks, communicating them to your investors and being comfortable with it yourself. Yeah, it's, it's a hard um, equation to crack these days. You know, I've seen lots of companies run into just as many challenges with First Nations and ind- Indigenous issues um, on projects here in British Columbia, as I've seen um, you know, companies in Peru with local community issues. And, you know, often the result is the exact same, um, you know, barricades or blockades rather, uh, of projects and really just complete gridlock of any progress being able to be made because companies haven't managed the political or community, um, or indigenous issues adequately. And, you know, this is something we consider a lot at Resource Insider. We think about a lot um, before we get into a jurisdiction, before we invest in a company. Uh, we've gotten it very right a few times, and we've gotten it very wrong a few times as well. Um, namely, you know, in Africa, we've we've been involved in projects where um, employees have been murdered on site due to due to challenges, and it's uh, you know it's it's a part of this business that a lot of people sitting at home. Uh, don't fully appreciate often the risks being taken by these geologists or or guys working on site or drillers or what have you uh, to work in these parts of the world. Yeah, no, when you get into the question of uh, call it employee safety, you know, that that's that's a whole nother uh, consideration. That's something that to me would be a non-starter for me personally. I, I fully understand that there's all sorts of phenomenal deposits that companies go in and are willing to endeavor and and hopefully they provide the security but for me that's not that's not for me the the riskiest thing i take on is is something that you know expropriation yeah um, but, but yeah I mean, it, look that's it's you know you can't find these uh, these these deposits don't occur outside of downtown vancouver there no, you know, i know but so many i mean and the issue with a lot of these sort of emerging jurisdictions is things change very quickly uh an area that was safe one month might not be the next month and it's uh you know, it's it's um, part of what makes mining a very interesting business, uh, but also a very challenging business. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's dynamic for sure. Let's take a step back, Stephen, uh, and talk for a second about how you actually ended up getting into the mining industry. Because you come from a primarily business background. Is that am I right on that? That's that's correct. Um, I guess you know I'm traditionally or you know I'm educated in the finance side of things, but I. Um, had exposure to the mining industry, well, primarily because I'm from Toronto, and Toronto, much like Vancouver, is is really a, a hub. We like to say we're the, the, the financial hub uh, of the mining world. I don't know if that's true anymore, but you know, Vancouver certainly would give us a run for our money. But these are these are hubs, and yeah. they are um, they're centers for people, geologists, lawyers, financiers, entrepreneurs, people like me. We we live here and I believe in proximity. So if you're proximate to somebody, you're more likely to be friends with them. So if you're proximate to an industry hub, you're more likely to be associated with that. And I suppose that to take that to the next level, my father uh, was, is a mining lawyer. And so I had exposure to this industry through him and I still work with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's how I, I first got exposure to it. And so I, from a very young age, I, while I wasn't necessarily working on it, I was, I was aware of it. Now, had, had I grew up in, in um, you know, Albuquerque or, or wherever, it, you know, less so, I may, may have had interests elsewhere. But it's really about proximity, exposure, and then eventually I just got hooked. Yeah. You know, 
that's a good point. And it's not something I've talked about on the podcast before. We've got a lot of, um, I guess, young professionals who listen to this podcast and I, and I get questions a lot from them. So I'm from Toronto as well. Uh, and I always, I didn't know that. I didn't know you're from Toronto. I thought you were a Vancouver guy. I know you live there now. Well, I'm actually from Kingston, Ontario. And then I, I went to U of T and I lived in Toronto. I worked in Toronto for about 10 years for hatch consulting and, and a variety of other sort of huh. businesses there. And, you know, I always kind of, picture Toronto as like, if we think about New York as the finance center, I think of like Toronto as the finance center for the, for the bigger, more established companies. And I think of Vancouver as more approximate to like a Silicon Valley for mining, where so many of these companies uh, get originated and started. And there's really a great venture scene. But as companies tend to progress and mature and grow, they often end up in Toronto when they, where they need, where they need access to bigger sources of capital and banking and all the rest. Um, but you know, I, I liked your sort of comment on sort of how, how the sort of being in a hub for something like this, because I get a lot of calls and emails from young geologists and engineers and whatnot who say, look at, I've worked at this mine or I've been involved in this project and I'm really interested in getting involved in the business side of things, or I'd like to start a junior company or, or that any number of things like that. And I actually always say, and it's not always well received is you need to get yourself to Toronto or Vancouver. If you want to do this, it's really, really hard. If you're not in one of these locations, at least when you're starting out, when you're more established and you've got a reputation and had success, it gets a little easier and you get a little more flexibility, but I, you know, I can probably attribute the vast majority of sort of my success and especially in this sort of startup mining space of being in Vancouver. And I don't think I would have ever come to it or been able to achieve it had I not moved here. And, you know, it's just so important to be around, especially when you're starting to just be around the things that are happening. And it's, it's harder to do that in Timmins or in Sudbury or, uh, you know, any of these other places where there's certainly lots of opportunities to work in mining. But if you want to, sort of invest and start companies and be involved in startup companies, you have to be in one of these hubs or else you're at a, at a serious disadvantage, I would say. You know, question, I, I like your, your analogy of Vancouver being, uh, you know, Silicon Valley. And I think that's fair to say in Toronto's, you know, by and large home to the bigger guys, though, though there are quite a few juniors here, mm-hmm. uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what, what we do, they don't teach in school. Um, so there's only one way to do it unless you're sort of gifted or, or profoundly uh, talented. Uh, you really need to work for somebody who's done it before. So, yeah. you know, go bug Ross Beatty, go bug Marco Day or, you know, guys like that, Rob Friedland. If you can get in the door there, that's the best way to do it. Now, I mean, that's if you want to take a fast track and become the entrepreneur. Uh, you know, the other way, of course, is become an engineer, become a geologist, learn, learn the trade, the technical side of it. Um, and then, and then eventually transition to call it de- the deal side. Mm-hmm. But that's not so, an easy transition to make. And I, I know, I know a lot of engineers and a lot of sort of geologists that are trying or have tried to make that tra- transition, and not always successfully. And I, you know, I would say the only reason I was able to do it is because I came here and I worked for a lot less money than I was right. been previously getting paid. Well, I don't think it's money, Jamie. I think it's because you persevered and you sort of, you know, you, you inserted yourself into a situation. I think you worked with Greg, Greg Smith mm-hmm. and, and, and others, I imagine, and who've been very successful. So you did exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, you found somebody exactly. who knows what that they're doing yeah. and you hitched your horse and you, you learned. I think uh, it's certainly 
it, 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 let me repeat, it is very difficult to do what we do. There's a lot of moving parts. I think your odds of success of doing what I do, for example, are much better if you're a geologist or an engineer because you've got this fundamental technical basis. While I'm not classically trained, I'm probably have the equivalent of a BA in geology because I know, you know, at least I know how to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and I know where to push, but I think, and the reason why I say they'd be best served in going to work for somebody else is because you really want to learn all facets of the business. You can't just be an engineer or geologist. You have to be the lawyer. You have to be the promoter, the marketer, the IR, the CFO, compliance. All of these things have to come together. You have to sweep the floors, really. I mean, if you want to be a successful leader of any business, you need to understand every single facet of it. You can't yeah. be an expert in all these things, but you need to be able to question and push back on these so-called experts so that you're not getting taken because you're going to be, and not in a negative way, people aren't trying to take you, but you will be taken if you're not paying attention and you don't know where your weak points are. So it's, it's, I don't want to say it's impossible. Nothing's impossible, but your odds are greatly improved at success in starting a company. If you can call it apprentice, let's just call it that. Yeah. I, I think that's the right way to look at it. And you know, the challenge is it's, there's no book for it, right? There's no, there's nothing you can, I often get asked that, you know, what, where should I read? What should I read to learn more about this? And I always, I always actually recommend read the big score, you know, the story about Robert Freeland. That's the gold standard, book. isn't it? That's one of them. That's for sure. I think that to my knowledge gives the best sort of overview of how the industry works and the different players. You've got the brokers, you've got the promoters and the geologists and the major company executives. And, you know, I read that book in university um, when I was like 18, I guess. And I remember thinking like, well, that, that seems way cooler than being an engineer. Like, <laughs> we should, I should go uh, this You, you want to bang your shoe on yeah. the table, right? <laughs> but it's true. And you, but you got to be in one of these places. These things are happening and learn from the people that are doing yeah. it. And most of them learn from somebody else that was doing it too. And it's been, it's a, I think apprenticeship is a very good um, description of that. And that leads me exactly where I wanted it to, to our next question. Uh, which I want to talk about something you've been very involved in, and I've also been more peripherally involved in, which is YMP, the group Young Mining Professionals. Um, why don't you give us the overview of what YMP is? YMP is just a group of uh, young people who are interested in networking and developing business opportunities. I mean, to me, that's the essence of the group. Uh, it's evolved into quite a, a more sophisticated organization than that. Uh, but ultimately, its its aim is to promote the industry, uh, promote young people within it, foster uh, relationships, because you're only really as good as your network. Uh, I always view life as just nothing but a series of obstacles and challenges that lay ahead of you. And, and how one solves those problems is really tantamount to how successful they are in life and in business. And if you want to be a good problem solver, you're going to need a network. You're going to need to call on people to assist, whether that's delegate within your team or call on somebody for a favor or call on somebody for expertise. Um, I, the, the origins of YMP is in, in your um, hometown, uh, of course, your, your, your new hometown of Vancouver. It was started, uh, I think, about 12 years ago by, by Greg Smith yep. uh, and, and two other guys. And it was a great idea. And it, it was really just, I, I would say, 
a supper club, if you will, where they would get together with their buddies and they would uh, have a steak dinner. I think I would have called would... it a drinking club, but I think that's a, drinking a more, club. That's a more yeah, generous way to, to describe it. I wasn't trying to disparage <laughs> those guys, but yeah, I'm sure it was uh, some booze were involved and in they are involved here, but, uh, but you know, that's not what the group is about now. And I don't think it was there. It's really about, again, getting like-minded people together. And so that's what it was. And I think, yeah, well, it was, a, it was a bunch of KPMG accountants, I believe, that wanted That's to meet correct. executives in the industry. And they, they threw these sort of... I don't they wanted know, to generate tax and audit business. Yeah, four, right? four meetings a year where they'd you know, rent out a room in a restaurant. They'd bring some executive. He'd kind of share his life story and what he'd learned and et cetera, et cetera, along the way. And it you know, gave them you know, access to new business, but also they learned a, a ton about, about what was going on in the space. And it, it really evolved here to... to to be in a proper club and then it was full of lawyers and engineers and geologists and anyone interested in the business and then i think you were instrumental in in you opened the toronto chapter is that right am i remembering yeah that so so when i found out about it i had been in the industry for a while but uh, all, all my associates were gray hairs and i don't think the certainly the the um, community here in in toronto isn't as um deep as it is in Vancouver. So I really didn't know a lot of my contemporaries or people younger than me. So when I found out about the group, I thought that was great. Yeah, I'd love to go to an event. And I found it was only in Vancouver. And so I figured, okay, well, I'll call these guys and say, hey, you know, bring it to Toronto. And I think those three guys had sort of that, that group had sort of, sort of reached its, um, a point where it needed um, new leadership, new legs. As I said, it was probably 10 well, years old. they weren't that young anymore. Actually, most of them right. were much more established in their career and focused on other things and had families and, and all the rest, right? Well, there you go. And, and it's true, families. And so uh, it, 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 make no mistake about it, it's been a big time commitment, but a, bit of, a very valuable one that I've made. So I just made the pitch, let's bring this to Toronto. Um, and then from there, I just sort of got my hands on it and have been for lack of a better term, operating the group by and large ever since. And why I say the group, I mean, certainly YMP Toronto, but it's grown into a global organization mm -hmm. with a global board. Uh, I serve as its chairman of the global group and uh, we have expanded to uh, all six continents. And that's now. what I wanted so, to bring up because there's probably a lot of people listening to this who would be interested in this, but maybe haven't heard of it. And so what are some of the cities you guys are operating in now? So we've got uh, we've got a chapter in South America. It's, it's uh, YMP Peru. We've got uh, soon to be announced, but I'll put the cap, cat out of the bag. We've got YMP Mongolia. We're just about to announce uh, with a with a really exceptional uh, group of young people who work at Oyotogoy. Mm -hmm. Very sophisticated group of engineers. Uh, great ideas. I was you know I was blown away about how uh, sophisticated these these guys were out of Engels uh, out of Mongolia. Uh, we've got a chapter in Johannesburg. We've got three chapters in Australia. Um, and then, of course, in in uh, Europe, we've got the U the UK, YMP London, and in Vancouver, Sudbury, Montreal, and Toronto. So that rounds out the family, and they're all not for profit organizations. Uh, all not for profits. Everybody is a volunteer, and uh, and it's and it's we've evolved it to the next level. We've started something about three or four years ago. We started the, the charity arm, which That's is right. a, you have again, a scholarship now, right? Is that right? Correct. It's, the YMP Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund, which is run out of here in Toronto. And uh, I think this year we're just about to announce our scholarship program. And it's going to be north of $90,000 this year. That gets and, allocated uh, to different candidates. and Correct. Yeah. Not, not to one person. That would be, that'd that'd be, be a great be deal. A, <laughs> amazing scholarship. 
Um, but no, there, there are, let's just say, a dozen scholarships, uh, each partnered with corporate sponsors, Barrick, Agnico, Yamana, Ken Ross. Uh, I don't want to name them all, but I don't want to leave them all out. But, you know, fantastic partners who we, we approach or they approach us now, actually, and they say, look, we want to be a part of it. And we facilitate everything. So they give us the money. We market it. We identify, you know, we, we identify the candidates. We shortlist it. We manage it. I mean, it's quite a quite a process to to market, solicit, and select. And so we do all that. We do all the heavy lifting for the partners. And then the objective is is simply to give away their money to the students. And the most proud thing I am about that is that. Literally 100%. So every dollar that we get from Kinross or Barrick or from B2 Gold or from Equinox, and Greg is a, is a great help and brought that uh, new sponsorship to the table, that goes directly to students. So there's no administration fees, no nothing. So all money flows directly to students. And is this tax deductible for the companies? You bet. All right. They make money. So companies <laughs> listening, listening out there, great charity, great cause, helping develop the industry, tax deductible. Where can they find out more about this, Stephen? Go to why go to youngminingprofessionals.com uh, and click on the the charity aspect, or get in contact with me. Go to theorgroup.ca. You'll find my contacts there. Uh, we'll be more than happy to uh, grow our our scholarship fund. That's that's our objective. Really, that's that's where I focus most of my time now is is growing that endowment so we can attract young people because there's such a huge talent gap in this industry, which yeah. is exacerbated by the boom and bust nature of it. When there's there's you know, going back a year ago, I would have said, look, there's no jobs for the past five, six years for somebody coming out of, of the U of T program, which, by the way, you, you graduated from the Lausanne School or what is now known as the Lausanne School. That's right. School. Yeah, it was the Lausanne School when I was there. So, so that's that's just up the street for me. And every year I go and I give a lecture there to the graduating classes, the capstone class. It's been a lot of fun. And, you know, the last two or three years has been five or six people in the graduating class. Yeah. So when I was there, we were a big year. So we were 30 people. But the year before had been nine, I think. And it's I think that just goes to show how cyclical it is. It is Absolutely. But I, I suspect that, you know, in a, in a year or two. Five? Five. Jeez. five. That, was, that was last year. Actually, I should say, I don't know this year because I did this year's online, so I never got to see them. <laughs> uh, but the year, the year prior to that, there was only five people in that graduate class because there were no jobs. And so why would you spend, you know, 10 grand a year, whatever it is, tuition, all that, you know, accumulate that debt to come out and, and you know, basically go work for Rogers Cable because there's no jobs in my. So, you know, are you finding, are you finding companies now are, are demanding young talent? Are the companies out there, are those, have those jobs come back? You know, we've seen the industry pick up massively over the last year in particular. Do the sort of the bigger companies, the places where, you know, I think as a young engineer are the best places to work. I worked at Hatch Consulting and Leighton Contractors, but there's in Toronto, there's Barracks, for example. Uh, Ken Ross hired a lot of my classmates. You know, are those guys, have you seen starting to look for students now? Are those, what do we call them, EIT, like engineer and training programs? Have they come back? EITs, GITs, yeah. Uh, You know, but I don't know if they're demanding you know, them per se, but it's a supply and demand situation. Mm-hmm. It's really, they're demanding people. And so I think all the experienced people are, are being taken up. And so they just, you know, have to go down into the earlier talent pool, if you will. That's just sort of kind of how it works. Um, so I don't think anybody is out to get a GIT, but they'll take a GIT if there's no better alternative available. And right now, as you well know, the whole industry is flush with cash. 
for better or worse, for better, actually. But what that does is that creates um, backlogs of or, or of demand. So, you know, you want to get an assay done. You know, I, I was just on the phone with the CEO of an assay lab. Some of the labs are six, seven months delayed. Um, I'm trying to get a drill in Quebec. I can get a drill. I want to get a third drill out in a project. I can get the drill. I just can't get drillers. So as we have ramped up relatively quickly, especially in a COVID time um, where, you know, in some industries, in fact, the, the, the guy from the lab was saying, you know, the government's giving away 2,500 bucks a month. He can't get, you know, labor because they'd rather stay home. So, I mean, yeah. we're still facing some of that stuff. So when you, when you layer on the fact that we're doing a lot of drilling, a lot of meters these days, and we need a lot of boots on the ground uh, compounded with the COVID issue, there's, there's a serious uh, shortage of talent and and supplies and and i think you know inevitably that's going to lead to cost creep and and the cycle continues okay so we're coming up on an hour here um and i actually have tons of other questions which maybe we'll have to get to some of them in a round two but i do want to ask some sort of quick questions at the end sure. they don't have to be super quick answers but i'd love to get your thoughts on them um you know, do you have any advice for sort of budding professionals, engineers out there? Sorry, I didn't mean to say engineers, words on my brain, would be entrepreneurs out there that want to take the step into, and we've talked a bit about this, but into a business career, an entrepreneurial career in this space. So, you know, obviously we've talked about, you know, join YMP, try to locate yourselves in places like Vancouver or Toronto where there's a mining hub. Is there anything else you would say that you should be doing if you want to start your first company, that sort of thing? Um, take risks, be bold. Fortune favors the bold. Say yes. Don't say no. There will be a point in your career where you'll be forced to learn how to say no, which can be difficult. But until you've made it, say yes. Especially if you're young, you can afford to fail. And failure is really just a, a matter of, of uh, attitude. Uh, you're going to fail, period, end of story. It's about how you deal with the failure move on, learn from it, try not to make the same mistake twice. So when you are young, and I just had a, you know, I just was called um, uh, the other day about a guy looking to make a transition and he's 31 years old, very seasoned, you know, an investment banker analyst. And I said, look, um, and he didn't know whether you go to A or B. And I said, um, take the bigger risk. You're 31, you're not married, you have no kids, you can afford to fail. And, uh, you know, that lesson in failure, if it is failure, in fact, uh, probably will serve you well down the road. So be bold. And if I could add to that, I would say something that comes to mind is get comfortable quickly asking for money. Um, I think that's <laughs> the biggest hurdle for especially like accountants and engineers and people from a very uh, geologist, a traditional background, not sort of an entrepreneurial past, is getting out there and getting comfortable asking for financing and, and pitching your deal. Uh, you know, it's it depending on your personality, it can be a very big hurdle to overcome. But that is one of the most, maybe the most essential skill set yeah. for a entre for entrepreneur sale. in this space. Yeah, you got to ask, you know, ask for their business, ask for the sale. It's very difficult to do, especially if you don't have a, a track record. If you have a track record, it becomes substantially easier, but it's never easy. Uh, we are salespeople. Um, everybody's a salesperson at the end of the day, but but you're absolutely right. People are are uh, skittish around asking for money because they feel that you know it's it's their reputation. But that's what I said. Be bold. Put yourself out there. Yeah, and the the quicker you can really build up a constituency of supporters that you know believe in what you're doing and are 
are comfortable writing checks into into the companies you're trying to build, the you know the easier life will get. Um, people want to keep learning about this sector. I know I said earlier there are no books to read, and it's it's a hard thing to do. But do you have any advice on how you can keep learning, how you can sort of develop skill sets, books, meeting people, conferences, anything like that? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I devour as much information as I can get. I do not watch TV by and large. You know, I don't make a point of it, but I, I, I don't watch TV. I, I stay away from the mainstream media. I, I consume information that's relevant to my industry and my businesses. And so that's just my focus. So outside of my family, which is my most important priority by a long shot, I, I make it a priority to learn as much as I possibly can about all facets. And that is absolutely books. That's where I start. I probably read every mining book, textbook, biography I can get my hands on. I got a whole bunch of it back there, but there's always new ones coming out. I've got them on order from Amazon. So books are your best friends. That's you putting uh, the knowledge of 10,000 people into your head and experience. So uh, I don't think anything uh, beats a book. Uh, the other thing I do is I, I devour information on YouTube. So I don't watch TV, but I watch a ton of YouTube. They're like my lullabies. I find it, you know, a biography at night or a documentary, and I just sort of put the iPad there. And, you know, I, I never I never make it to the end. But, you know, that's just I, I assume I'm absorbing it as I sleep through osmosis, which isn't the case. But, you know, it's really just um, I'm just totally committed and focused on reading information that's relevant to my career. So I think and, and you know, other media as well and podcasts, I got to say, um, um, your podcasts I've listened to for got it. You know, how long you've been doing it? That's how long I've been listening. Yeah, to it 2018. For. I think we launched early 2018. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. I mean, you were one of the first podcasts I started to listen to and I sort of, you know, got exposed to that medium. And I've been devouring ever since. I've probably taken a little bit of a break just because I've been, you know, inundated with other things. But I, but I love that medium when I'm walking. So I, I'm not wasting my time walking from A to B. Not that I waste time walking, but like I'm, I'm consuming information. So that I think that's critical. Okay. Is there any advice you constantly hear given to people that you actually think is bad advice or wrong? <laughs> um. So I'll give you an example. I think like I often hear people say things like, oh, if I just like I want to start a company, I want to do this, I want to do that. If I just complete this or if you just complete that, I think like my personal opinion is the better. Like when posed with the question of when now is always pretty much the right answer and that it doesn't really get easier as you get older. It doesn't get more simple if you get more experience. So that's something I often hear people say, well, wait till you do this or wait till you've accomplished that. If your goal is to start a company, I mean, start a company. That's that's my goal, or that's my view on that. Uh, anything to add? I would I would agree with that. I mean, now with carpe diem, as they say, you know, just just do it. Don't be afraid to fail. Uh, what I would say is, um, you know, don't follow your passion. Um, I think uh, I can't remember who said it, but I always this quote always stuck with me is that you know you're passionate about this. Well, I was passionate about pitching for the Jays, and I was a pretty good pitcher, but I. But no matter how passionate I was, I was never going to make the team. So um, my advice would be to find something that you're good at, okay? Because everybody's got a specific skill set. Either you're you're good at finance, you're good at rocks, you're good at this. Find something that you're good at and you can tolerate it. And then become set the goal to become the best at it, okay? You may not be passionate about it, but um, I think in time, passion can be developed. Uh, so... I think passion can often mislead people. I think it's just developing your skill set that you have an inclination 
and, a, and an inherent talent for yeah. try to become the best and try to make it a business. I think even if you're the best street sweeper in the world, you can make a business out of it and, 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 and grow it. And so, um, yeah, I think, so, that's yeah, good I advice. think it's, it's, it's focus and, and be good at one particular thing. You know, I think of often all the really, really successful people I know, I wouldn't say their defining quality is passion. I would say it's obsession. Uh, you know, passion is like being in your bliss. Obsession can be both good and bad, but almost all of them are um, uh, obsessed to the point of, you know, uh, <laughs> to a problem, problematic point about their career and what they're doing. And those are, you know, the most successful people I've ever seen. Uh, whether yeah, that's well, good you or need bad, in order to be say. successful, you need determination, which can be sort of, you know, a proxy for um, obsession. Yeah, but you, you need to work harder than the next guy. I'm not smarter than the next guy. I think I'm smart enough. I probably just work as hard as as, as anybody, uh, you know, and, and so I think it's, it's hard work and focus and dedication um, are the keys. You can be passionate about when you know when you're when you're wealthy. You know, that's when you can explore your passions. Yeah. Collect horses or something. All right. Sure. Have fun like that. <laughs> Stephen. Thank you very much for your time today. If people want to know more about yourself and the Or Group, where do they go? Um, go to orgroup.ca. My email will be there somewhere. Phone's there. I, I, I answer all my emails, my telephone calls, uh, uh, if I can, and I do. So uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for watching. That is Stephen Stewart from the Or Group, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Did you enjoy today's podcast? Me too. If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.